So I know, I know we just prayed. <clears throat> I know we just prayed a few seconds ago, but um, I want to pray again because I feel like your, I feel like your heart, my heart needs some preparation. We're each going to be asked whether we like it or not because just we're here. We're going to be asked um, one of the more difficult questions we've been asked in a long time. Both of us, like you guys, myself included. And uh, so I, I want to pray for my heart as I share these things. I want to pray for your heart as we wrestle with these things. It will be very, very personal. Um, and, and so I just, I want to pray again. And I can't like, I can't make you receive these things tonight. But um, I'm going to ask the Lord to soften your heart to them. I, I'm, I'm praying that something happens in these minutes together that, that none of us have ever experienced. And I don't even know what that looks like, but I'm going to pray for that. So join me, all right? God, you already know our hearts, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you see right through us. And so even our answers tonight to these questions, that, that you already know them. So I'm praying, God, right now that you would cause a desire in us to be transparent with you, to confess genuineness and, and sincerity that we wouldn't hide, we wouldn't cower. I pray, God, that you'll overwhelm us right now with um, a longing to be in your presence. So I'm going to pray, God, that tonight you'll come here in ways that we've never experienced. I'm praying for salvation in this place tonight. You would save those who have come here lost and burdened. I pray, God, that you'll do something here that would only, only further um, our faith in you. In your great and holy name, amen. What do you guys think about this statement right here? The seconds of your life are driven by what you believe. In other words, what you believe drives your actions. This holds true in serious ways. It holds, it holds true in kind of funny ways, right? Um, most of you probably didn't watch The Weatherman this morning, but maybe you, you looked on your weather app or, you know, like none of you guys showed up in a snowsuit or a parka tonight, right? Or a cardigan, as it were, right? Like no one, no one did that because you believed that the, the weatherman was right when he said, hey, it's going to be a high of 84 Pretty little humility, uh, a, a pretty low uh, humidity, and um, you know, and then it's going to be a low of sixty-two, and so you believe that, and so you, you dressed accordingly. Some of you guys have walked into restaurants. I, I never do this, but some of you do. You like ask the waiter, right? Like, so what do you what do you recommend here? You know, and so they'll, they'll spout off something. Uh, you go to an, an Italian restaurant, you should really try this muscacholi slash spaghetti slash like barfing tomato thing that's on our menu. And you're just like, sounds good. Like you, if you recommended it, it must be awesome. Uh, we did this more when we didn't have uh, GPS, but, um, and never guys, but always girls. Like if you're lost in a city, because guys just act like they're not lost. But if you were, if you were lost in a city, right? Like girls would like roll down their window by random passerbyers. Hey, can you tell me how to get to, you know, XYZ place? And have you ever thought about it? Like we put our trust in a complete stranger, like in a complete stranger's hands. 
Yeah, so here's what you do. You go left over there and then right, and then you do a U-turn at the oak tree. Like, and we just, it's crazy, right? Some of you have gotten in the car of someone that you've never met. Have you ever thought about how ludicrous that is? Like, you have no idea this dude or dudette's tra- track record. You have no idea, like, how many, we just, our actions show what we believe, And so that starts to get pretty heavy because then you start thinking about all of your actions and then you're like, well, if those actions were birthed out of belief, then oh dear heavens. I resigned many years ago to stop doing something that I had started doing. Uh, In my early youth pastor days, I had gotten really good at judging people's Christianity. So at rallies I would speak at or places I was at, I I would, in a prophetic word, I would like, yeah, you're a Christian. Yeah, you're not. I mean, people would come up and pray a prayer. You're all going to heaven. I mean, I was just like blanket judging people's Christianity. And thankfully, God, I don't know if you've ever been smacked by the Lord a lot, but just one day I felt like he just like, you know, just like just smacked me across the face and, um, And what he taught me is what I continue to embrace, that I'm not the judger of souls, and I'm really thankful for that. I'm not going to judge someone's eternity. I'm not going to judge whether they're a believer or not. But what I resigned to do at that moment is what I can do is I can teach and encourage from God's word what it does mean to believe in God and not other things. That's what I can do. I can um, call into question the genuineness of my own faith and the faith of others. Without making a judgment call on either, uh, I can challenge and I can uh, prayerfully by the Spirit's guidance like say, do you really believe in God or, or do you believe in these things that appear like God? And so tonight, uh, right from 1 Corinthians, I want to wrestle with that very intense question Do you really believe in God? So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And as Brandon already mentioned, we have some new new Bibles. So if you're tired of being distracted by your notifications while looking at your Bible on your phone, uh, feel free to use a real one. Um, Let's start here at the end of chapter 1. I want to read last week's passage for you. Verse 26 says this, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Remember this, verse 27? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. God had a very distinct strategy. I told you last week, like to look down your rows. Your rows are proof of that. Like he chose the weak and the low and the despised so that he would be glorified, so that no man may boast, and that's what verse 29 says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, this awesome passage who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And finally in verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. And I hope that that's what has been happening in you in the last week. Like you found your heart, your, your mouth following a ton of boasting in what God has done. 
And so last week, as Paul continues in Corinthians, set the stage for what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So his message is the testimony of God. When you hear the word testimony, what do you think of? Come on. When you hear the word testimony, what do you think of? Story, right? Like, isn't that a good synonym? So I want to make sure you understand what Paul's come into Corinth communicating. The story of God. I've said it here before. I'll say it another thousand times. Like, God is writing a story. And he's written it. And he's unfolding it. And he's revealing it to us. And we, by his grace, get to be a part of it. But this isn't your story that somehow like God has an entrance in. It's God's story and somehow graciously we have an entrance in it. And that's what Paul's saying. I didn't come to you. Like sharing the testimony of God with lofty speech or as he says here, wisdom. Now what does he mean? He's encouraging them. Because he knows how quickly we become hesitant. He knows that that it's so easy to look at the Apostle Paul and say, well, of course you preach the gospel, man. I mean, you've been beaten, smacked. You're like the best church planter in the modern world. You're you're Apostle Paul, man. Of course you evangelize. Of course you tell people about Jesus. So why would he say otherwise? Because he knows how hesitant people are. He knows how hesitant we are. When it comes to sharing your faith, many of you believe this. Yeah, yeah. But what if I don't say the right thing at the right time with the right tone, with the right language and the right body figuration and the right, and what if I don't do all, the, all those things right? And so then we just shrink back. We cower. We become hesitant. We sit back on our heels. We, in our mind, let someone else evangelize. Like that is, that is the majority of you in this room. Very, very hesitant to share your faith or to share the story of God because you think it has to be in this prescribed way. And if it's not, that God's going to like lightning strike your face, okay? Now listen, when you're teaching your kids to, to, to swim, you get to see this precise image, all right? Took my kids to the pool, had these grandiose ideas for, for what my kids' pool experience would be for the first time. You know, and so uh, Ava was a little bit older, and so she's swimming, you know, with no, you know, floaties on and stuff. And so my boys, I'm like, come on, boys, let's go, right? Like, I know you're only three and two years old, but let's do this right now. Let's figure this out, right? No, no shame in this game. We need to show up your, show up your sister, right? So, so they get to the edge of the pool, right? And they've kind of been swimming around, but you're trying to teach them to really be a man by jumping in. You know what I'm saying? Because you're not a man unless you can jump in a pool. Amen? Like that's just, if you're taking notes, like write that down right now, okay? And so I I felt like we were, I felt like it was a hostage negotiation, you know? Because Dawson's like, he's just like sitting there towing the line, you know? And the, the water right here is like two feet deep, you know? So he's right here and I'm literally right here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, my arms are two inches from him. And I was like, come on, man, you know, like, just jump, you can do it, you know. And he would get all smiley, and then he would like, then he'd get right there, and then he'd just like, you know. 
and then, like, I started to get a little feisty. I'm like, son, you will do this, right? You know, and you're, like, yelling at him, trying, you know, and, and then, like, and then Avery jumps in. Look, your sister did this. A girl did this. What's your problem, son, you know? And, and you're seeing, like, all of this hesitation. And then finally, right, like, he's like, okay, in a moment of courage, I'm going to jump two inches, you know. And he jumps. And then you guys know the rest of the story. You know, he's like, well, that, that wasn't that bad, you know. And, like, all of a sudden, he's got some swag, right? Because some of the other lady, you know, some of the other three-year-olds who were swimming over here, they're like, oh, look at that boy. He jumped in, you know. <laughs> and he's like, what's up, ladies? You see that? I'm going to jump in again. Watch this, floaties and all, you know. I'm like, so many of you have never got to experience the unbelievable sensation, revelation of just being used by God in ways that you could never explain or imagine because you're, you're, you're like sitting right here. And you've listed out all of these fears. What if they don't do this? What if they don't accept me? What if I don't say the right thing? Let me make sure you understand something. You do not save people. You've never saved one person and you'll never save anybody. And so when you are freed by that, when you know that your words do not save people, I mean, seriously, I have botched the gospel and people have come to Christ. People come to Christ watching Hell's Gates, Heaven's, uh, Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. This thing that I've been like adamant against, you know, like trying to scare people into heaven kind of thing, and yet there have been genuine salvations at those things. How? Why? Because God is the one who saves. Like, I mean, I can just, even though I don't want to, I can communicate just heretical things, and the Lord still in his grace could say, listen, that dude's an idiot. Let me tell you the truth straight to your heart. I'm a good God. And that's what Paul's saying. Like, I just, I wasn't hesitant, and I came to Corinth with not this wisdom that you were looking for, because as a Corinthian, like, that's what you're obsessed with. I, I came with something else. I'm just saying right now, listen, it's way more fun to be at the end of yourself and watch the Lord just do his thing than it is to learn the prescribed method to share Christ and forever be hesitant to share it. Now, I, sh I should end in proper, like, analogy, like, so just jump in, guys, but I'm not. <laughs> Although I just did. Anyway, verse 2. <laughs> For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is a really peculiar verse. Here's why. First of all, if Paul says, I decided, it, it reminds me of uh, the old ancient hymn. Some of you guys who maybe grew up in a church with a hymnal or something, you remember the old song, I Decided to Follow Jesus? You guys remember that song? So it's a, it's a super cool song, and I remember both my grandparents like just belting it out off tune, both of them. My grandma was always like six keys out of tune, but just like, I have decided, you know, it was just awesome. <laughs> the re that was actually a pretty good grandma impersonation. <laughs> Give myself some props on that one. Listen. For Paul to say, I've decided to preach Christ crucified among you, it, it means that there were other options. So he's like, I could have come in with all kinds of messages, all kinds of confused things to say, but I've, 
But actually, I came to you with one thing, and that was Christ crucified. And some of you theologians, you're like, well, what about the resurrection, man? You, you diminishing the resurrection? I mean, come on, Paul. I know it's not Easter, but seriously, the empty tomb, like, that's a pretty significant event. And I agree, and Paul would too. So why does he here focus on Christ crucified? Let me explain it this way. If Christ begins to walk on the water, and then it, it starts to not going, go so well, and he sinks, and he drowns, and he dies. And then he still conquers death and raises from the dead. And is like, ha-ha, like, you know, you thought, and it really was, and here I am. Like, what, what if that happened? Well, that would mean that the perfect Passover spotless lamb didn't become atonement for sin. What happens on the cross, as Jesus takes on the sin of the world, as he takes on the wrath of God against sin, is he becomes atonement for sin. If that event does not happen, then our faith is futile. Because there's no forgiveness. Jesus, instead, on the cross, atones for sin makes a way for relationship with God. And so when Paul says, I've come with a message of Christ crucified, he's saying, I've come with a message of love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And certainly the empty tomb is Jesus conquering death and bringing an end to the sting of death. All of those things are true. But he's saying, if there's no atonement for sin, then what in the world are we doing? So then it kind of puts a lot of the other um, world religions in perspective, doesn't it? So Christianity is the message of atonement for sin by no effort of our own, but through the grace of our God. And every other world religion in some way or another is, if you do this, then maybe God will be appeased by you and you'll be reincarnated You'll have a thousand concubines in this heaven. You'll, and on and on and on. The cross of Christ says you have done nothing and yet you're an orphan who's now adopted. Listen, I know the, I know the scripture says the, cro- the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who don't believe we saw that in, in Corinthians, but I'm kind of looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective. Christianity in that way just makes sense. Like, why would I choose a religion that's based on my efforts and forever damn me when I can open my arms to love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness? makes no sense. You guys see what I'm saying? And so when when Paul tells the, the Corinthians, I've come to you with the message of Christ crucified, he's saying, don't get confused. It's so easy to like dab your toe in all kinds of other waters. Stay the course with the message of the gospel. And so then he adds this clarifying passage in verse three, and, and it's, this is strange for him to say this, but he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now, uh, most of you have a friend that's like, you would consider hardcore evangelist Jesus lover, okay? So, so, like most of you guys have that friend. When you think of, in my day, DC Talk days, Jesus freak. Like you have, you have this, you have this image in your mind. Okay, 
Well, I think we'd all agree, like Paul, for all of us, would kind of be that. Again, church planter, beaten for the gospel, tremendous apostle, has done unbelievable things, it seems, for the Lord. Like, he's a hardcore dude. And so for him to tell the Corinthian church, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, it like starts to disarm this image that you had of the man. It starts to make him a man. This is why confession of weakness, confession of sin is so absolutely, absolutely necessary in the church. I know many of your experience uh, in the family of God has been that if you withhold your sin, then at the end of the day, people are going to have this, this image of you that you're the one who's hardcore. But actually, my definition from when I was younger has completely shifted into who truly is following the Lord. It's when people confess their sin. When they bring people into their weakness because their desire in that most often is to say, listen, like, this is who I am and I am in desperate need of Christ. I told you guys this before, like, I'm longing as a dad and as a husband to do this in my home all the time because I, I don't want my kids to think I'm Superman. And it's easy, man, I, you, to come home from work and be like, what up, you know, daddy slayed 17 demons today, you know, and like, and just like you, you come in and you're high-fiving everybody, you know, and another day for the Lord, kids, what's up, you know, and it's easy to feel that. Instead, like, we've been going through a lot in the last week, um, and I love the fact that my wife at the dinner table a few nights ago, uh, because of some situations we're, we're going through, like, she's just weeping. And the kids are like, is mommy okay? Yeah, she's, she's just lost a dear friend. I love, that, I love that my kids see brokenness and weakness. I don't hide my tears from them. And, you know, just a couple days ago, I, I wronged my son. Like, jumped too quickly to discipline, uh, disciplined out of anger. And instead of just passing it by, like, I held him. I was like, son, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done this. Here's why I did it. And it was completely errant. Forgive me, son. And he's like, what does errant mean? I'm like, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. It's okay. Just go with it, man. You know. <laughs> now, I want to show you maybe what Paul's talking about. Here's what Paul says about himself in 2 Corinthians. Check this out. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And many have said, like, maybe Paul was, like, a little wobble-kneed and uh, certainly a little bit short. Um, many people argue he was pretty, in worldly standards, ugly. You know, like, Paul wasn't the uh, American Eagle or Abercrombie model a kind of guy. So I don't know exactly what he's talking about in weakness, but he's at least confessing it. Isn't it awesome that your definition of what strength is could completely be redefined? your weakness. Now, the verses that I really want to spend a lot of time on here. Verse 4, look at this. Paul says, on my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but, he says, in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, here's my question. How do you know 
when it's the Spirit? Like, how do you know when it's the demonstration of the Spirit and not your own efforts? How do you know when you're not faking it and it's actually God working in you and through you? You guys know what I'm saying? Like, how do you know? What, what is the gauge? Because there's sometimes I feel like this is totally God at work in me and we'll like even use that language. But then the fruit, you're like, I don't, I don't know if that was God. Like, God, is this, is this your spirit in me? So what I want to do is examine then this question through story. How do you know when something is in demonstration of the spirit? Scoured the New Testament, found a very specific story we can learn from, Q Acts 7. Here we go. Check this out. Now, when they heard these things, Stephen drops it like it's hot. He preaches the story of God, shares the story of God, does so boldly, knows his end. The scripture says they were enraged, the hearers, and they ground their teeth at him. This is how intense it is. I mean, so apparently, Lucas, he writes this, uh, you know, like even in the tradition or or the oral uh, understanding of the story, that they could hear the physical, like that's how angry they were. They were grinding their teeth, not dental approved, verse 55. But he, look at this, full of the what? Full of the Holy Spirit. That means that Luke the writer is clearly convinced that everything that happens in this story is demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Are we all together? So then that means that whatever we deduce from this story would show us what it means, at least a piece of what it means, to be in demonstration of the Spirit, which should incline your ear a bit. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He looks up and he just is like taking in the glory of the Lord. And then things don't... Uh, maybe apparently to the world, go well for him. But they cried out with, with a loud voice and, and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They, they act like children. Can you picture this? This is around the death, and like you have like grown men and women like putting their, their fingers in their ears. We're not listening to you. Like, you know, it just, it's childish. Then they rush at him. Look at this. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Because we're not there, it feels distant, so let me help. Um, Ancient stoning, you would dig a hole in the ground. And the reason you would dig a hole in the ground is so that they would have nowhere to go. And apparently because their aim was uh, terrible, you know. And and so, you know, they they wanted the process to be a little bit elongated, but they they would throw them in this pit, and then everyone would stand around the top of the circle, and then they would go get stones and just... It's interesting, right, like that, that people could actually do this and feel good about it. So they stone him, the scripture says, look at this. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named, there he is, Saul, later uh, named Paul. And as they were uh, stoning Stephen, he called out, did Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Crazy, verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He, he's not taking a nap, okay? He's going to be with Jesus. If he's full of the Spirit, if this is demonstration of the Spirit, then, then what can we learn? What are the implications from this story? Uh, number one, let's look at this. How do we know when something is in demonstration of the Spirit? The fruits of the Spirit are evident. 
if you don't know the fruits of the Spirit, if you never saw the youth group teaching where all the, you know, the people come out like with the, in the, in the you know, Fruit of the Loom underwear costumes, teaching, you know, oh, and grapes represent, right, you know, just weird stuff, okay? Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, I just feel led by the Spirit to look at porn. No, that doesn't work. That, that doesn't work. Oh, I feel so led by the Spirit to yell in anger at my wife and then hold over her head that I'm a spiritual leader of our home. No, that, that doesn't work. You can't claim to be led by the Spirit and go against the fruits of the Spirit. Does that make sense? Now, let me make sure you're all understanding this. Listen, every single person in Christ, the moment of their conversion is given the gift sealed, Scripture says, with the Spirit. You're given the Spirit. The moment you have the Spirit inside of you, you begin the sanctification or growth process, and the fruits of the Spirit then begin to demonstrate themselves. Every Christian demonstrates the fruits of the Spirit. There are different gifts of the Spirit, but every believer embodies, displays, demonstrates the fruits of the Spirit. Now, do we do this perfectly? No. Do we struggle? Yes. Do we sin? Yes. First John, 4, uh, First John 1 says, look, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. So we're not saying that we do this perfectly, but we're saying when your life is a demonstration of the Spirit of God, then the fruits of the Spirit are evident. They're seen. And so please, for the love, like, Stop saying, oh, and God, God has led me to right now rebuke you in hatred and anger and judge you in my heart and wish you were dead. It does not work that way. That's where the world gets confused. That's where you get confused. The fruits of the Spirit are evident. Number two, what we can learn from Stephen's story, um, the focal point and perspective is heavenly, not earthly. It would have been so easy for him to feel sorry for himself. To think about his flesh, to like, you know, ducking away from the stones, or to run really fast. It would have been very easy, listen, it would have been very easy for him just to cower and say, yeah, you know, I know I just shared that whole Jesus thing, but ah, I really don't believe all that. I was just like, I gotcha, you know, like it's all good. No need to stone me. He doesn't. Because his perspective is not here. It's not that he doesn't care about here, but he only cares about here uh, in so long as it's glorifying the Lord here. He understands his, his citizenship is somewhere else. And so his perspective is heavenly. That's why he's looking up in the heavens. Okay. That's why even as the stones begin to come, he's forgiving the people who are killing. Listen, when was the last time that someone horrifically wronged you and you found yourself as they're doing it forgiving them? Right, like, when was the last uh, breaking up? And, like, as that punk is, you know, sharing, oh, yeah, and the Lord, you know, they're using the God card, of course, you know. And the Lord has just really told me, even though I haven't read his word in, like, three months and haven't prayed since Nam, the Lord is really, he's, <laughs> the Lord's really told me that I'm just to focus on him and keep, you know, journeying with him, so... We shouldn't be together. And I'm not saying that you should be together. 
but what I am saying is like, it, it's this very like fleshly, like when, when was the last time that happened and you, and you found in your heart, oh, I forgive you. I, I forgive you. You know not what you do, son. You know, I forgive you. Um, but that's, that's the portrayal. That's the demonstration of the spirit because it doesn't make sense, right? Like girls, most of you are, you know, you want to take a kind of sharp dagger, you know, dull kind of so that it hurts a little longer, you know. But imagine your heart doing something that doesn't make sense. I forgive you. And the analogy goes on and on. Finally, look at this. How do you know that something is in demonstration of the spirit? Your action is contradictory to the fleshly desires. Contradictory. What you used to do in the flesh, now you watch the spirit guide you in a different way of life. Uh, Just last week, you went to the party and you just got completely obliterated. You felt the weight of your sin. You understood like what that did to your testimony. And you repented. And a week later, as all the the friends of yours were going, hey, let's go, let's go, man, it's time to go. And in this moment, like you're feeling the tension of relationship and you're like, you're feeling, but I'll be left out. And like there's like 95 emotions that go on in that moment. And you find yourself saying like, no, no. I don't, I don't need that, actually. Like, hey, you guys, you guys go on. I'm just going to hang back. Demonstration of the Spirit. Your actions contradictory to those of the flesh. Now, there, there's so many more, but I, I want to give you these to say for sure in the Scripture, in the story of Stephen, he's led by the Spirit of God, and it produces tremendous fruit. Not for his glory, but for the Lord. It's crazy. And then verse 5, God says, where we're going to hang most of our night in. Look at this. So that, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, what Paul says to, to Corinth is he's like, I didn't come with lofty speech. I came in fear and trembling. I, I came in all of these weak ways. So that your faith wouldn't be in me, he says but that your faith would be in the power of God so that there wouldn't be any confusion about what it is that you're putting faith in. But I want to contend to you, there is a lot of confusion in this room. What really is your faith in? So let's ask the question this way. Next slide. Here's how we would phrase this. How do you know when your faith is not in the wisdom of men but in the power of God? How do you know? How do you know that your faith is genuine? How do you know that your faith really is in God? Because there's a lot of options. Check this out. You can have faith in God or you can have faith in in a religious system, faith in community, faith in leaders, faith in past a religious experience, a Christian experience, faith in your family's faith, faith in others' testimony, Christian culture, and expression, faith in heaven. You can even have faith in Scripture and it be all based. You're like, whoa, 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 Mark. Faith in Scripture? Like, how, how, could, how could I be errant if I had faith in Scripture? Listen, uh, the Pharisees did that. The Pharisees believed down to the letter, or so they thought, that 
that God's word, that they had understood it and that they knew it, and yet they were looking the living word of God, John 1 says, in the face and did not have faith in God. So some people, yes, have made scripture in the pursuit of knowledge there, God, but that's not faith in God. Listen, if your faith is in religious community, if the primary essence of your faith is built on public expression, if it's built on family, any of those things, if it is built on those things and not in God, do you understand that is not faith in God? So now the implications start to get a little bit tricky. So you're like, so Mark, if you're saying, are you saying that if I don't have, that if I have faith in those things, then I don't have faith in God, and then, yeah, I am saying that. I'm saying if you don't have faith in God, you don't have faith in God. So then how do you know? How do you know if you have faith in God? You ready for Matthew 8? You ready? So let's look at a story. Unbelievable. Check this out. Love, love, love this. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward. Centurion is a leader of a hundred Roman soldiers. Boss man, strong dude. A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. This means like he's, he's coming with some fortitude. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, Jesus, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Crazy. The centurion's like, no, 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 look, like, I'm not, please do not come. I'm not, I, you, I can't even have you over. Just say it and my servant will be healed. Look what happens next. For I to a man, the Roman soldier says, under authority with the soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And my servant do this, and he does it. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he, what's the word? He marveled. Now, I'm going to make sure we're all on the same page or something. If Jesus marvels, I would say that's a decently significant moment in the scripture. Correct? Right? Somebody like, come on, say it. Let me say it another way. All right. If the King of the Universe is marveling at something, I'm not saying he's surprised, but he wants to point something out. Like, then certainly this is a story we should pay heavy attention to. Here's what he marvels. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, which I get this image of him seeing this, having this conversation, him turning to the boys behind him, and he says this: Truly, I tell you. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. So if Jesus marvels and he's marveling at his faith, then this story we can learn from. Because then clearly Jesus is saying, this dude has genuine faith in God. Do you guys see what I'm saying? So then we can, we can answer from this, then what are the implications? But before, let's continue the text because it's awesome. Check this out, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, speaking of the Jew and Gentile, a confusion and ultimate death in hell. Verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. 
this will be heavy. And this will be very, very personal. So everything from this point on, it's you and the Lord. That's it. As we walk through these implications, is your faith genuine? I hope you understand this is paramount. What can we learn from the centurion? Number one. He goes to Jesus. He doesn't go to the doctor. I'm not making a stance against doctors. He doesn't go to his friends. He, he, like The story records him going to Jesus because he really believes that all hope in life is found there. Your life shows what you believe. What does your life say right now about what you believe is the ultimate source of life and hope? Because the repetitive hamster wheel addiction that you have, your belief and your actions, faith without works is dead, James 2 says. You're revealing by your life that this thing has something to provide you. Uh, for others of you, it's, it's relationships. I mean, it's clear that you're overly obsessed in a relationship that either that person is good or, or, or bad, it doesn't matter. You've made this thing your source of life and hope. And so your, your life says what you believe. Actually, I think that this human 20-year-old is the source of life. Now, do you, like, when you say it that way, that, like, doesn't it make some of the things that you think ludicrous? That you would think those things about a 20-year-old man or woman? Your life shows what you believe. But we're just getting going. Number two, I love this. Here's what the centurion says. I am unworthy to have you come to my house. But does he stop there? Does he stop? Come on. No, he still asks Jesus. So he feels unworthy, but it doesn't stop him from appealing Jesus. So he has found the ability in his faith to work within this tension of I don't deserve anything, it's only by grace, your mercy is good, God, I'm not, you're, you, I can't even have you over at my house, even though I'm a Roman centurion, like I'm a boss man, people respect me, I tell someone go and they goes. as unworthy as I am, I'm still going to plead, I'm still going to, in confidence, believing that you can do something, go to you. This tension is revelation of someone that believes in God. They never feel deserved. They find their hearts consistently knowing it's grace, it's mercy. I don't, I don't deserve anything but death. But I'm not going to let my unworthiness shroud my new identity in Christ. So I will simultaneously Know that I'm not deserved. Know that it's grace. 
and act and live and trust like I'm a kid who's got an inheritance because I have a very, very wealthy, giving father. But what often happens is you let the unworthiness Uh, and so those kinds of people are, are the kinds of people that are always like, I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner! I'm just, I'm the worst person ever, I'm so depraved. And there's no hope. All you hear from them is doldrum sin talk. They talk more about their sin than they, than they do the Lord. That's your first problem. Are we together? Listen, if you got Christian friends that talk about their sin more than the hope that is going to forgive their sin, please rebuke them in love. Maybe you're talking about your sin too much. You guys know what I'm saying? Like, are you, do you ever have friends that all the content of the conversation is their porn problem? Or this issue or that issue? It doesn't matter what the sin is. Like, every time you talk to them, this sin, this sin, this sin. Hey, listen, I understand you're struggling and battling, but can I remind you about the forgiveness of the Lord? Let's work through and journey through your sin, but... Dear heavens, don't let that create a different kind of non-gospel identity. And then there are the others, the deserved, who don't live in the tension. Instead, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm completely worthy, actually, of, of who I am in you, Christ. Like, I'm pretty much the best Christian in the room. I pretty much, you know, I mean, I've served. I've loved. So, God, actually, you should thank me, you know. I've repped you well, Lord. I'll just wait till heaven. We can figure it out then. Many crowns you'll give me. You know, it's, it's, but this dude has found the tension. Number three, heavy. You view God's sovereignty as a gift. Here's what I mean. Sovereignty is synonymous with kingship. So in ancient kingdoms, you would say a king is sovereign. What, it, what that means is they're in control. They're running the show. They're leading. They're guiding. The centurion sees the sovereignty of God as a gift. He's going to the source, and he knows the source is able but he doesn't know what the source will do. And either way, he believes that whatever the source decides to do, that he's still sovereign and that's still good. But for many of you, if God doesn't answer in the way that you want, then he's not good. If God doesn't provide in the way that you prescribed, then he's not good. Because you went through what you went through, then he's not good. Your faith is seen in the desire to believe that no matter what, God is God. That's why number four hits so close to home. It's not based on results. Do you notice that Jesus marvels at his faith before his friend is healed? 
What does that tell you? That Jesus marvels at the kind of faith that no matter what happens, it's not based on the result. It's based on the character of the object of the, the faith. If so, then if our faith is based on results, then what do we do with, with Dana who died from cancer? What do we do? Dear friend, there's so many here. So many prayed. I remember a, a college prayer morning where 40 of us right, right back there put Dana in the center and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And I came back after breakfast and all around where Dana sat, the floor was still wet from many of your tears. And on Saturday, she died. So then what? Is God not good? Well, if your faith is based on results, then no, he's not. Then you look at that and you're like, God, how could you do that? Two young kids... She didn't deserve cancer. She didn't des her kids didn't deserve to see that. Last Saturday, um, my kids had <clears throat> made her a gift. And uh, I've shared this with some of you guys, but I told my kids when I came home from, uh, from work one night, I was just like, hey, we're going we're gonna to make a, a gift for Dana, and so my my daughter Avery like came up with this whole plan. And so she just started telling, telling all of us. She started barking out orders to me and the boys. So she's like, "All right, we're gonna you guys paint this box, and paint it pink." You know, and we're like, "All right, this is kind of lame, but okay." And so the the boys start painting the box, and then Avery like goes and gets a bunch of rocks. And I'm like, Avery, like. This woman is dying of cancer, like, but she's, she's like writing these things on, on the rocks. And so then I see her call Dawson and Maddox over, and they're, they're like whispering things. And so then she says, hey, Daddy, can you get a blow dryer? I'm like, what? Blow dryer. Okay. So I get a blow dryer, and she's like, could you blow dry the top of the box? So I start blow drying the top of the box, and then she comes behind me, and she writes in paint. Miss Dana, you rock. And so then she puts all these rocks that she had written, Dana's characteristic traits, on these rocks. She puts, puts them in the box. And so I'm looking at my, my daughter. I'm just like, how did you come up with this, you know? But we go over uh, a week ago Saturday, a week before she passed away. And I'm so thankful that the Lord allowed my kids to have a front row seat in this whole journey. But they, they, they bring this box to Dana. And I mean, Dana just, just weeping. And one by one, she calls my kids up on her lap and just speaks over them. 
I mean, she, she tells my son Dawson, she's just like, I see Jesus in you. And I'm like, I'm glad you do, you know. And, <laughs> and we're all just like, and we get in the car and I open the side door. And I look every single one of them in the eye. And I just tell them, you never forget this. You never forget this moment. You got to watch a dying woman's unwavered faith because her faith wasn't based on results. It was based on character and not her own, but in the object of her faith and a good God. And I just remember like pleading in my heart, like God, please help my kids have a genuine faith in the character of an unfailing God and not in the whimsical circumstances that this life will produce. I can't predict what's gonna happen tomorrow, my friends. I can't tell you you're not gonna get cancer. I can't tell you you're not gonna get sick. I can't tell you your parents aren't gonna die. I can't tell you that tomorrow you're not gonna score the best job ever. I can't tell you any of those things. I do not know, I am not sovereign. But what I can say is if your faith is in God, the object of all of those things, the reality of all of those things, the fruition of all of those things, the source of all of those things, if your faith is in God, then anything can happen. Then we can watch a dear friend die. We can go through it ourselves. We can journey through tragedy, experience tremendous joy. Like, it, it doesn't matter. Does it hurt? Yes. Do we, can we cry? Yes. Can we celebrate? Yes. All, all and in between. But what it doesn't change is who he is. That's why the question, is your faith in God, is so pertinent right now. Because you could spend the next 20 years confused. Believing that you have faith in God, but really your faith is just in the Christian experience or just in some Christian ideal or just in some ideas about what culture could provide for you. I'm telling you right now, now is the time, tonight is the time, right now is the time to say, am I really believing and trusting in the God of the universe or in my ideas of God? And there's a stark difference. And so on Friday when I do the funeral here, the message won't be marvel at Dana's faith. The message will be marvel at the object of her faith. Because he is worth trusting. My guess is, my guess is, is that there's some of you right now that are starting to feel condemnation. There's some of you right now that are starting to question a lot of things. And tonight, I just, 
instead of shying away from the deep questions, I'm just, I'm praying that your heart would allow yourself to journey through it. Because the end isn't a deeper understanding of yourself, it's a, a greater belief in the Lord. So, to those of you tonight that have just now realized your life displays that you don't believe in God. There's forgiveness for you. There's the open arms of a good father for you. There's even in this table a means of remembrance because that's what this table is. A chance for us to remember the power of Christ. A chance for us to remember the broken body and the spilt blood. A chance for us to say, God, thank you that I don't have to leave here unassured, that I can actually leave here assured. So for those of you that right now have discern that. You're just like, you know what? The Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit isn't evident in me. I'm not a demonstration of the Spirit of God. My, my life is distant. I'm, I'm living like hell. I'm living for myself, and I'm tired of it, and I'm ready. I'm ready to not do that anymore. God, help me trust you. That's your cry tonight. What a blessing to cry that. And a good God says, I'm worthy to be trusted. Have faith in me then. And so this, this table is for those who say that your faith is in God. Who even tonight say, I, I'm wrestling and I'm, God, please continue to refine me and I'm not gonna do this perfectly, but my faith is in you. This table is for those that would say the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So family, my brothers and sisters, Let's come to the table tonight in confidence of a good God who calls us to himself.